Welcome to the All People's Leadership Podcast. It's not every day that you get to sit in on a in-depth Bible conversation between two pastors and leaders, and that's what you're going to get to experience today. Pastor Robert Herber is interviewing Dr. Jim Garlow as they talk about in-depth this theme in the Bible known as the Blood Covenant and how understanding it opens up all the scriptures for us as good Bible students. Hope you enjoy this episode of the All People's Leadership Podcast. In that beautiful garden that unpacked this to our tour group in Israel, and I don't know if you remember, I was sitting in the back of our little tour group with my thumbs of blazing, trying to take rapid notes as you were unpacking this incredible, incredible teaching on the blood covenant. So I just wanted to jump into that today and ask you, first of all, would you just tell us why is God highlighting the blood covenant right now? Why is everyone talking about this? And why is that so important at this time in history? Well, we live in a time that's very exciting where God is revelating, his self-revelating, his self-revelation. And there's just so many things we're understanding now from the scriptures from the word of God we might not have grasped before our lack of awareness, for example, of the Hebrew roots or the Jewish roots to many aspects of our faith. It's causing us to grasp so much more. But this particular teaching on the blood covenant, it is the single most important construct or teaching for understanding the Bible. That's a pretty strong claim, but I think I can back that up. The whole Bible, the Old Testament, is called the Old Covenant. The New Testament is called the New Covenant. So they're built around the constructs of a covenant. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there was a particular practice they went through, steps of the ancient covenant-making ceremony. And those steps are what explain the Bible. And once somebody understands the covenant-making ceremony, from the ancient years, by ancient years in culture, I'm referring to this, ancient 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years back to the time of Jesus, another 2,000 years back to the time of Abraham. By Near Eastern culture, it's not Far East, Near East it means the country around present day Israel and the country surrounding it. So the kind of practice that was normal there is the key, the single, sort of the Rosetta Stone of understanding the Bible, which raises an obvious question, if that's true, why does the Bible not explain that? <laughs> and the reason is because everybody, the Bible was written for a particular time and culture, and everybody in that culture understood the steps of the ancient covenant-making ceremony. And since they understood it, there was no need to explain it. But once you understand that there are hundreds, I suppose I could make the case thousands, but there, there are at least hundreds of Bible verses that makes sense, that before that would never make sense. I discovered this a long time ago, 19, wow, 1983, I think it was. It electrified me. In fact, I began weeping as when I started understanding and seeing the scripture through this. I was like a, I called an elderly friend of mine. I said, elderly, he's easy age, I now am. <laughs> I guess that's elderly. And I called my elderly pastor friend. I said, look what I discovered. Well, he knew more about the covenant. And we were like two kids on Christmas morning, unwrapping presents under the tree with excitement, discovering uh, the glories of the scripture on this topic. So once somebody understands the blood covenant, that is the key for understanding 
literally hundreds of passages, and the result is it's transformational to one's life. It changes how you view God and how you go forward in ministry. Wow. Well, I think you've definitely got our appetites wedded with that. So, you know, I think most of the people that are, are going to be listening to this, I don't know that we've heard even a whole teaching on the blood covenant. So where do we start? Okay, I'm going to walk through the steps of the blood covenant. And let's just, uh, for all of our listeners, I want you to picture that Robert and I, Robert Herber and I, a man who, by the way, I cannot tell you how much I respect and admire Robert Herber and the influence he is in San Diego and in so many of our lives. But let's suppose Robert and I are not pastors in San Diego. Let's assume that we're tribal chiefs in the ancient culture. And we are about to cut a covenant. That's the way they always said it, cut a covenant. We're about to cut a covenant with each other. To do that, we would walk through a number of steps. We would be in an open field before a crowd of witnesses. We'd be facing each other. Picture us facing each other, let's say, 10 feet apart. And the first step we would do in the ancient covenant-making ceremony would be to exchange our robes or outer garment. And the reason for that the purpose of that was to confuse identities. So if someone would see, they'd say, there's Robert coming. Well, no, that's Robert's jacket or coat or Robert's robe. But that's, well, that's Jim's build and Jim's walk. That's not, that's not Robert, that's Jim. So there's the confusion of identities in the first step, the confusion, the exchange of robes. The second is the exchange of belts. Now we think of a belt just holding the pants up. The belt was there for holding the weapons up. The belt was represented assets or strengths. So that would mean Robert and I would exchange belts, and in doing it, we would be exchanging assets or strengths. That means everything I have belongs to Robert now, and everything Robert has now belongs to me. That's step two. Step three is we would exchange the weapons that are on that belt. When we exchange weapons, that would mean we're exchanging enemies. So if anybody comes after me, Robert's going to defend me. Or if anybody comes after Robert, be assured, I'm going to defend him. In fact, it's suggested, we can't prove this part, it's suggested that the origin of the wave, when you wave at somebody, the origin of the wave was to expose a, there's a the covenant mark on the wrist, was to say, out there is another set of fists prepared to defend me, because we've exchanged weapons. Don't mess with me, because somebody's going to defend me. The oh, fourth step in this is the sacrificial animal was cut. In the cutting of a covenant, there's always the shedding of blood. So that's why we read in Genesis 15, and get a heifer and cut it in two. A heifer, picture a cow, and that has not calved. And so you have a cow, or a heifer, you lay it on its back, and you literally slice the animal from top to bottom, the underbelly of the animal, from starting at the head all the way, and lay the halves against each other. In any cutting of the covenant, there's a sacrificial animal. There's a shedding of blood. And then we would go through an experience called the walk of death. We'd be facing each other. I would walk through, it's called walking between the parts. Now you may remember, a number of scriptures talk about this. And so I'd walk between the parts, I'd come around one side of the animal, go through the animal a second time, come around the other side, having completed a figure eight, and I would stand back where I originally was, facing Robert. Robert would walk through the animal, go to one side, come around, walk through it again, go to the opposite side, and return to where he originally was, he would complete a figure eight. And that walk of death 
meant that we were giving up our individual identities. It's a death to my own self-preservation. It's a death to my own agenda. It's now I'm merging that with Robert. We're two tribal chiefs who are the cutting a covenant, and with the walk of death as our individual identities have been laid down. The next thing, the sixth step in the covenant-making ceremony, is the mark on the body. Now, this would vary as to how they do it, but in some cultures, they put a small incision, the wrist, and then intermingle the blood. So Robert would make an incision on his wrist. I'd make on one. We'd intermingle the blood. Some primitive cultures even practice rubbing of some abrasive substance like gunpowder into that. They would leave a darkened mark. And this is why, let me repeat what I said a moment ago, the origin potentially of the wave might be, though we don't know, is you'd wave to somebody to expose your covenant mark as a way of saying, don't mess with me because we exchange weapons. And so I'm, I have somebody else prepared to take on my enemies. The next thing that Robert and I would do as ancient tribal chiefs in the Near Eastern culture is we would stand facing each other. This is the seventh step. And we would go through a series of pronouncements of blessings, blessings and curses. So I would say, Robert, so long as you keep this covenant, blessed shall you be when you rise up, when you lay down, when you go out, when you come in, and since it was an agrarian economy, a rural or agricultural economy, blessed shall you be in your livestock and your crops, your wheat, your barley, your corn, blessed shall be your oxen, your donkeys, etc. And blessed shall you be the offspring of your wife and your children, and we pronounce blessing. But then I'd say, if you violate this, cursed shall you be when you rise up, cursed shall you be when you lie down, cursed, and we go through a whole string of curses, just like with your string of blessings. Now that ought to be igniting some thoughts in some people's minds, suddenly numbers of Bible verses that make sense that are all demonstrating what are the steps of the ancient covenant-making ceremony. Robert would then say the same pronouncement of blessings and curses upon me. Then the eighth thing we would do is we'd share a covenant meal together. We would sit down. We're still out in an open field before a crowd of witnesses, and I would feed him the first bite. He would feed me the first bite and say, as you take this first bite, you're, it's as if you're ingesting me. It's announcing our oneness as tribal chiefs in our new covenant or making with each other. That, by the way, is the origin of the picture that's oftentimes taken at wedding receptions when the bride and groom feed each other. And the next thing would happen would be the exchange of names. I would say to Robert, my name will no longer be just Jim Garlow. My name will be Jim Herber Garlow. And Robert would say, my name will become Robert Garlow Herbert. That is, every time we pronounce our names, we're announcing who our covenant partner is. The 10th step is the most critical. It's the most profound. It's incredible. But I'm not going to go into that yet. I'm going to park there for a moment because we're going to get that 10th step is a clincher. It's the one that just tugs at your heart. And before I go to that 10th one, let me just walk through a few Old Testament passages. If that's okay, Robert, I'll just keep going and jump in well, and cover Jim, some I'm, of the passages. I'm just stuck for a second thinking about Robert Garlow Herber and all the doors that could open around the world for me. So I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> kind of after this if we could cut a deal. <laughs> it, it might close more than it would open. <laughs> okay, keep going. <laughs> and everything I have belongs to you. You take on all my debt. Boy, that's a glorious thought. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, now we're going to jump into the some Old Testament passages, and you're actually going to see now 
where passages we've all read our, our whole lives, if you were raised in a church, and they made no sense unless you understand these steps of covenant. I should say, I'm walking through 10 steps of covenant. We covered nine of them. There are actually a couple more. There's the piling of memorial stones. There's the planting of a tree. I'm not suggesting every single culture practice all 10 or 11 or 12 of these all the time. But this is the collection of cultures. And oftentimes they would go through all of them. Sometimes maybe just portions of these that were normative in the actual covenant making ceremony. Let me take you to a passage in 1 Samuel 18. In that passage, Jonathan, Saul's son, Jonathan, is with his buddy, David. And it says he took off his outer garments, his robes, and gave, they gave them to each other. And then they exchanged belts and then later weapons. Now, tragic, this text is rich with meaning of the making of a covenant, the cutting of a covenant. And to show you how distorted the secular mind has become, the homosexual movement will take this and turn it into a completely inappropriate relationship between David and Jonathan, when in fact it's precisely the opposite. Is a glorious God-ordained friendship in which in that culture, in that practice, they exchanged outer garments. And so when you see in 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4, they exchanged outer garments. What is that? That's covenant. That's the exchange of identities. They exchanged belts. What's that? They met each other's assets or strengths would belong to the other. They exchanged weapons. That means they exchanged enemies. Let me take you to another passage. It's Genesis 15. If people understood Genesis 15, verses, starting at verse 7 and going to about verse 18, that passage is as important as John 3.16. And I would contend it's the one that makes John 3.16 possible. And I remember that because at the end we'll come back to my claim and I'll back that up. But God speaking to Abraham, Abram actually to God, and he says, hey, you promised, I'm going to paraphrase here, you promised me some land, Genesis 15. When am I going to get it? And God says, go get a heifer and cut it too. Abram did not go, what? A heifer? I don't want a heifer cut in two. I want, a, I want the land. No, Abram didn't bat an eye. Why? Because he knew what this was. This was the step of the covenant-making ceremony. This was Abram's most important moment. So God says, get a heifer, cut it in two. And he did that. And then they went to walk between the parts. This is God and Abram making a covenant. However, something very strange happens. Abraham, ah, I'm going to save that till later. I'm going to save that till later. That passage is relevant to every single listener right now. And when we go into the new covenant, I'm going to come back to that Genesis 15 passage, and it'll light a fire. You're killing me. You just took me to a cliffhanger right there. Well, it is so potent that the way to really see Genesis 15 is when we get to the New Covenant, New Testament. So be assured it's going to be worth the wait because that verse is relevant for every single believer. It's why they have salvation today. But I'm going to get back to that one in just a moment. Now I'm going to jump you to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, God is still cutting the covenant with Abraham. And he says, I want there to be a mark on your body. And that mark on your body that you belong to me is going to be circumcision. Now, why did God choose a small piece of skin from the male reproductive organs? The answer is a simple one. What was the greatest asset anybody had in the ancient culture? The capacity to procreate and have children. Children were seen as a blessing then. They ought to be seen as a blessing today. And so the capacity to have a child was the greatest thing that could happen to anybody. 
In fact, what was the greatest curse of any woman in the Old Testament? Barrenness, the incapacity to procreate. And so God is saying on that portion of your body, Abram, that indicates your capacity to create a son and a daughter, on that part of your body is going to be the permanent mark that everything you have, even your child, belongs to me, which explains part of why the sacrifice of Isaac that comes later. We'll get in that in a little bit. Now, let's walk with this circumcision theme a little bit longer. If you go to 1 Samuel 17, if a person was raised in the church, they've heard the story of David and Goliath their whole life. But what they don't understand is that's rich covenantal language. The whole circumcision we just talked about, that makes no sense unless you understand one of the steps of the ancient covenant-making ceremony is a mark on the body that indicates to whom you belong. And so when we go to 1 Samuel 17, the David and Goliath story, in the midst of that story is this most unusual phrasing on the part of David. David, standing there with all of his brothers in the army of Israel, looking at Goliath and his colleagues on across the valley, he says something very, it would sound inappropriate on its surface. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies or taunt the armies of the living God? Now, why on earth is David discussing something so private as circumcision? You know, I've always wondered that. I thought that is the strangest thing to say. <laughs> that is because it's the covenant. David's saying he's not circumcised. He does not bear on his body a mark that he's in covenant with Almighty God. I, a little short, red-haired shepherd boy, bear on my body the mark that God, is my covenant partner. Goliath doesn't have a chance. And then he says it a second time, as if once is not enough insult, he goes a second time. And he says, who is this uncircumcised guy? And then David uses more covenantal language that makes no sense. He says, you come with javelin, spear, and sword, all that stuff. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. Wait a minute, David, you're David. You can't come in Robert's name or Jim's name or anybody. You, nobody, I don't come in somebody else's name unless, unless I've cut a covenant with them. Uh, and since the covenant is multi-generational, that's very important to remember. The covenant is multi-generational. That covenant that was cut with Abraham comes down generation after generation to David. And David says, Goliath, I'm going to paraphrase. You're not messing with a shepherd boy, a little red-haired shepherd boy. You know who you're messing with? You're messing with God, and that's why you're about to go out, because I'm coming in the name, or by, by name means, by the authority of God. Why could he say that? Because of the actual name exchange that takes place in the covenant-making ceremony. As a result of that, he now is actually coming in God's name, God's power, God's authority. And as we all well know, Goliath couldn't stand up against that. Let me take you to another one. I referenced that the blessed and blessings and curses. If you go to Deuteronomy 28 and you read the first 14 verses, they're awesome. Blessed shall you be when you rise up. Blessed shall you be when you lay down. Blessed shall you be when you go out. Blessed shall you be when you come. Blessed shall be the offspring, your, your wife's womb. Blessed shall be your crops, your sheep, your goats, your cattle. Your, bless you. And this says, but, verse 15, if you violate my ways, cursed shall you be when it repeats all those things. That is covenantal language. That's one of the steps, one of the 10 steps of the ancient covenant-making ceremony. 
That's God making covenant with his people. Let me take you to another one. In Genesis 14, 18, we have this figure of Melchizedek dropped into the story and boom, disappears in an instant. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he comes from, but he has a covenant meal with Abram. He has the bread and the wine. He has the cup and the bread. He has the communion. What is that? That's the covenant meal. Who was Melchizedek? In the Old Testament, there's a number of theophanies. Theos for God, Fanny for appearance. Theophanies, the appearance of God. When God shows up, he shows up in flames, soar with clouds, with smoke. He shows up in all kinds of ways. Sometimes he shows up in the form of, of actual, they look like people, but they have no explanation. Melchizedek is one of those. There's a number of school of thought who Melchizedek is. I belong to the school of thought to think this is a theophany. It's an appearance of God. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He showed up and he, he cut a covenant, a covenant meal with God. This is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 15, the verse that actually follows next. It was one of the steps of the ancient covenant-making ceremony. And I would contend it's actually probably the second member of the Trinity. It's a type of Christ as well. Let me take you to another one. This gets really thrilling. Genesis 17. Remember I said, if we cut covenant, Robert and I would exchange names. Well, it's what God did with Abram. God said, I'm going to change your name, Abram, and I'm going to change mine. We're, going to, we're cutting covenant. So somebody comes along the next day and says, Abram, I hear you cut a covenant with somebody. What's your new name? And Abram went, Abraham. Now, why did somebody would stand back and go, whoa, you cut covenant with him? Why? An H, the equivalent of an H, that's a Hebrew letter. It's a different letter. It's a hey. But they, well, we'll call it the H for our purposes. Was stuck in the middle of Abram's name. Abram was stretched out, and the H was put in, in the ancient Hebrew. There's only vowels. I mean, there's only consonants. There's no vowels. Those were added later. The markings underneath the letters. But what was inserted was an H in the Hebrew alphabet. There's two letters that are sort of equivalent to the English letter H. One is a very harsh tone of. The other one is a soft tone of. It's this one that gets added. It's the. How's that? Why is that important? It's the breath of God. When did man become a living being? When the breath of God, the word in Hebrew is ruach, the ruach of God, the breath of God. In the New Testament, we go to the Greek. What's the Holy Spirit? Holy pneuma, pneuma, air, wind. It's a very hard word to translate. That's why they used to call it Holy Ghost. Holy, it could be Holy Wind, a Holy Blowing. Holy, it could be almost anything. It's the Holy wind of God that comes to bottom at that point. Now what that is, is this is a moment in which Abram's name has been changed to Abraham. And people would have stood in awe. You are in covenant with Almighty God? This is astounding. And it's interesting. Many of the opponents of the physical descendants of Abraham to this day, the Jewish people, don't grasp. It's multi-generational. It's been handed down. And they try to take on the descendants of Abraham's and can't understand why they can't. And the spiritual descendants, that's what we are as well. And so Abram's name was changed Abraham. And in that moment, God said, I'm going to change my name too. I will be known as the God of Abraham. And from that point on, we've been calling him exactly that. And then there's this 10th step, this incredible 10th step. Oh, oh, but I'm going to do that one later. That's right. I'm going to skip down. I'll get, I'll get to it. Okay. Now we're going to. I'm going to. I'm going to move you to the New Testament. If that's okay. okay. And I'm going to walk through that. Now, 
We've just covered some of the sample passages from the Old Testament, just sample passages, examples of when the covenant was being followed. There was, those are biblical passages that make no sense unless you understand the steps of the covenant-making ceremony. There's so many more. Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 22, it says, when you leaders of Judah, you cut the animals in two, you cut the calf in two, and you walk between his parts. What is that talking about? Well, if you understand covenant, you understand exactly what it's talking about. In this particular case, the steps of the covenant. Now let's jump to the new covenant. Hebrews 7, 22, and Hebrew 8, 6 says, there's a better covenant. Well, how could it be better? The old one wasn't too shabby. It was kind of nice. This is even better. And it says, Hebrews 10, 1 says, the old one was a shadow of the real thing. Well, what does it mean, a shadow? Let's suppose I was standing on a stage and there was a bright spotlight on me. And if you looked at the curtain behind me, you could see the form of Jim Garlow. You see the shadow of Jim Garlow. But if you turned the light off and you came and just joined me on the stage, you would see the incarnation of Jim Garlow. We go from two-dimensional shadow to actually a three-dimensional, actually real person, flesh and blood. The incarnate, carne, meat in Spanish, the enfleshment or enmeetment of God, when God took on human flesh. So now the new covenant's better because God actually took on the enfleshment. So it's no longer a shadow, it's the real thing. Now watch this. When Jesus and I... And I tell you, Robert, when I discovered this in 1983, and they sent me on a 16-year journey of digging out what I'm sharing with you now. Hmm. When I first, it took me 16 years to write a little dinky 100-page book on the topic, and then a whole bunch more years, and I partnered up with a buddy of mine who studied a long time, and we enlarged it to 200 pages. It's called The Blood Covenant, our book. And when I first discovered this, on a cold, wintry Dallas, I was in Dallas-Fort Worth at the time, in December of 1983, I got so excited, and I literally, on the third day of discovering this, I literally wept much of the day. Mm. It was like blinders, hundreds of scriptures came alive. My relationship, my hunger for intimacy with God, my passion for God, my receiving of his love for me, it electrified me. And this is the only topic that when I preach on, and the whole preaching is eight hours, we're only just covering a little tiny bit of it. Preaching wow. is eight hours. and. This is the only topic that when I stand in front of an audience and preach, I can actually see on the countenances of people transformation occurring in their hearts that's manifesting on their countenance. Wow. One time, I'll just park here for a second. One time I was preaching on this in Salina, Kansas, and it was in the Holiday Inn there at a church conference. And I was there, and I finished preaching on it, and I came to the conclusion, the finale. And I sat down, and the, the leader of the group was supposed to stand up and he was supposed to close them. It was 12 noon. It was time for a meal. And he sat there on the front row and didn't get up. And nobody moved. There were about 300 people in that ballroom. Nobody moved. And pretty soon you heard sniffles. You heard people begin to cry. And more sniffles and more sniffles. And for 20 minutes at noon hour when people should be eating, they sat there in the glory and the presence of God. Mm. And they couldn't move. They began weeping. One time I was with a Baptist group in North Carolina. And a group is a large church over to my left on about second, third, fourth row. People began laughing. So I thought I said something wrong. So I kind of moved over in that direction. I said, oh, okay, I obviously misspoke myself. So it's funny. Bring us all up to speed on this. And one of the guys, they looked sheepishly at each other. And finally, one of the guys looked back at me and says, no, we're not laughing. We've just never heard this. We've never heard this. And they were overcome with joy. Oh. It was that, it was, once you get a picture 
of the implication of this and the authority in Christ that we've been given, it just electrifies someone. Now we're going to jump in the new covenant. We've been in the old covenant, but we're going to the new. And what's the difference between the old and the new? Well, in the Old Testament, our sins are atoned, atonement. In the New Testament, generally the translation doesn't use the word atonement for the most part. It does sometimes, but most translations don't use the word atonement. Why? Because atonement has the meaning to cover for one sin. However, when you get into the New Testament, your sins aren't covered. Your sins are gone. The difference. Because if your sins could be covered, I suppose they could be uncovered. But once you get in the New Testament, the sins are gone. We're going to see an unbelievable teaching that's going to pop up here in just a second on this issue. When I was a little kid in church, there used to be a song we'd sing, and I used to think it was a corny song. But now as I'm an adult, it's theologically rich. And the song was, gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Now, once we understand the new covenant, we're going to understand our sins are actually gone. We'll get into that in just a moment. So picture this, Jesus and me, Jesus and I. We're standing out in an open field, and we're going to cut a covenant. And Jesus looks at me, and I look at Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, Jim, I'll swap your outer garment. I'll swap your robe. And I go, really? Yours is from Neiman Marcus, and mine I picked up at Goodwill. It's a good <laughs> deal for me. He says, I'll swap your garments. I said, wow, Jesus. Wow, I'll take that offer. And we swapped outer garments. And I wrapped myself in his robe of righteousness, and he wrapped himself in my robe of sinfulness. Mm. And the Father looked at me. Now, this is covenantal language, this swapping of outer garment. What we're talking about, these passages Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is covenantal language. And so I put on myself this unbelievable code of righteousness. And the Father looked at me, and he saw the righteousness of Christ. And I was welcomed into eternal life of God. And the father looked at the son, his son. And what he saw was my robe of sinfulness. And his son paid a horrible price for that confused identities, the confusion of identities, the whole cross, the cross, what we celebrate each time as we come through the Easter season. That whole cross is about the issue of confused identities on the cross. It's step one of the ancient covenant-making ceremony. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, he who knew no sin, he made him to know sin. He made him to become sin. Theologically, I cannot explain uh, several different passages on this, but one is this right here. He became sin for us. It's bad enough to take on my sin. He became sin. And what we became, we became the righteousness of Christ. That's a confusion of identities. The second thing is when Jesus and I entered into covenant in front of a, on an open field, in front of a crowd of witnesses, we exchanged belts. Now, what does that mean? We exchanged strengths. What does that mean? Second Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 has some passages that, that makes notes. It says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Really? That's illogical. When you're weak, you're weak. When you're strong, you're strong. You can't say when I'm weak, I'm strong unless you understand covenant. If you understand covenant, then you know the great exchange that took place. Then Paul is saying, when I was weak, ah, because I'm in covenant with Almighty God, I'm actually strong. And there's a swap of assets or strengths that take place. I become, I operate with the strength of Christ. And what happened to Jesus? He went according to the writing in Isaiah. 
he went like a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep to the slaughter on my behalf. He took upon my weaknesses and exchanged it. I got his strength. And then, let's go for this one, Ephesians 6. Number three is the exchange of weapons. It's intriguing when you read Ephesians 3. It says, put on all your armor. No, it doesn't. It does not say put on your armor. That's what you would think it would say. That would be logical. Put on your armor. You don't put on somebody else's armor. I don't put on Robert's. Robert doesn't put on Jim's. No, you put on your own armor. That's what people do when they go to war. Unless you're in a covenant relationship. In that case, we exchange weaponry. Put on the armor of God. What is that armor of God that you're about to put on? It's all the things listed in Ephesians 6, and none of which we have unless we're in covenant with Almighty God. That passage, we quote it all the time. It's a refrigerator verse. We put it on the refrigerator, but we don't fully grasp it unless we understand. That's an actual step in the ancient covenant-making ceremony. That's step three, where we exchange enemies. We exchange weapons, but you exchange enemies. Now, what does it mean to exchange enemies? Let me ask you this. What is the greatest enemy of God? The answer is Satan. What's our greatest enemy? Death. We exchange enemies. Jesus took on death. He defeated it. What's his greatest enemy? Satan. Now, by the way, I don't equate them in power. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. Uh, Jesus had no beginning, has no ending point. Satan has a starting point. He's a created being, so not on equal footing. I'm not implying that they are. But the greatest enemy of Jesus on the planet Earth is what Satan and what Satan does. We are to take on Satan. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, if Satan comes and bothers you, Hey, dial direct, call me right away on your cell phone and ask me to come and I'll come dig you out of this problem you got. And <laughs> quite the contrary, we're told resist him, resist Satan. In other words, Satan, uh, Jesus says, put it, you put it, you church, you Christians, you followers of me, you covenant partners with me, you put a stop. I've given you the authorities. I've given you the weapons. You put a stop to what Satan is doing. And let's take another step. What's the fourth step in the covenant-making ceremony? It's a sacrificial animal is cut. There's always the shedding of blood in a covenant. In fact, it's suggested, I don't mean to be indelicate here, but on the wedding night of a couple, if they're both virgins coming to the wedding bed, on the marital bed, there is the male parts enter the female parts, there's the breaking of the hymen, there's the shedding of blood over the male parts. It's suggested that that's a picture of a covenant-making ceremony of sorts. So now we're in the New Testament. And there's a sacrificial animal that's going to be sacrificed. And who is that? It's the Lamb of God. And Jesus is about to be sacrificed. Now, this is exhilarating what happens. In Matthew 27, the centurion is standing there watching the crucifixion of Jesus. And at 3 o'clock, it was dark, and all of a sudden, he is shocked. He's shocked that Jesus has died so quickly. No, but he's shocked at He says he's unbelievably shocked. What is he seeing? He's seeing, because I think the crucifixion actually took place on the Mount of Olives. I think the evidence is overwhelming that that's where the crucifixion was. That's where mm. the evidence just, to me, is compelling beyond description. A whole lot of about six, seven, eight, nine, ten different reverberations. And so the centurion would be able to have looked and seen down, that used to be an enormous viaduct or bridge where the red heifer was brought across, used to be across the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount. Now, it doesn't exist anymore. But he would have seen right into the Temple Mount. It was dark, but it lit up. But you can't see into the Holy of Holies. Nobody can see into that. Unless, unless a curtain 
that was many inches thick, a gargantuan curtain, a massively heavy curtain, was ripped in two from top to bottom the instant that Jesus died, which is precisely what happened. And Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, interprets it for us. It said that body that was destroyed on the cross, in effect, that body is represented by the veil. That veil is his body. And just like the animal cut from top to bottom in Genesis chapter 15, in the ceremony with Abraham, the body of Jesus represented in that veil was cut in two, and we had access into God. A covenant was made. That's why the tearing of the veil is wow. so incredibly significant. That is represented by the body of Jesus sacrificed in that moment. And then comes the fifth step, the walk of death. Why do we have passages in the Bible saying you'll only live if you die? He who tries to hang on to his life loses it, but he who dies, he shall live forever. That's covenantal. That language makes no sense. It's illogical unless you understand the covenant. In the walk of death to self, you have life within him because you're now identified with him as your covenant partner. That's the fifth step. The next step is a mark on the body. What was the mark on the body in the Old Testament? Circumcision. Paul redefines for us in Romans chapter 2, he redefines circumcision. He says, what is circumcision? Circumcision is now circumcision of the heart. It's of the heart. It means, now this is really rich. What does that actually mean? It has the meaning that circumcision is a cutting away of some of the flesh. What does it mean to cutting the way of flesh? Well, in the New Testament, the word flesh can mean our literal skin, or as a different Greek word, it can mean absolutely worldly ways. So Paul is saying the kind of circumcision that counts now in the New Covenant is the cutting away of worldly inclinations, desires, hungers from your heart, your driving force, the core of you. That's wow. who's a covenant partner. And there's even the representation, I won't go deep into this because this gets in the weeds too quickly, but even the removal of the physical skin around the male reproductive organ is suggesting of the cutting away of flesh, symbolic of worldly desires, that when the sperma, the sperma or the word, is another word for word sometimes, the sperma or the word, when it goes forth, it's unadulterated or uncontaminated or untarnished by any contact with any of the worldly desires, the fleshly desires. So the mark on the body spiritually in the new covenant is the circumcision of the heart that Paul speaks about. And then there's the pronouncement of blessings and curses. That's the seventh step in the covenant-making ceremony. And where do we find that? Well, it's really interesting. Now, this one I got stuck on for years. I tried to figure out, wait a minute, I see the, all of these that's in the Old Covenant. And by the way, I so wish we didn't separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. I wish it was one continuous book. It is a tragedy. They get separated. There should be no separation. There are hmm. equal importance. It is absolutely imperative we understand the Old Covenant. Some of the covenants see have passed away. The Adamic Covenant, Adam's Covenant, doesn't have the meaning. The Noah's Covenant, well, it has some meaning, but it's not relevant to the average believer today. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant, well, that's probably what was finished when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. What was the it? Probably the Mosaic Covenant and the fulfillment of the law. Uh, but the Abrahamic Covenant is different. The covenant with Abraham flows through the covenant to David, and from the covenant of David flows through to the new covenant, which is the covenant with Yeshua. It flows right through. I wish the two books were locked together and nobody ever separated them. It is a travesty of truth. We lose truth 
when they get separated the way people go, oh, I'll read the New Testament, but I'm going to skip the Old Testament. Oh, my goodness, what they're missing out on. And God, God is showing. There's an explosion of revelation happening right now of Christians discovering, I hate to say it this way, how far off we are as evangelical Christians. We understand some basic the truth. We understand a lot of good things, and that's right. And the good news, we got the basics. But we miss the whole foundation piece for the, the kind of thing we're talking about right now. This is a tiny, tiny piece of the amount of revelation that's going on, the discovery. God is revealing in these end times the depth of truth that we all need to know to be able to walk through the times that are coming. Well, continuing on with it, it was at this point I got stumped, and stumped for years, because as I go from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, I could make the parallels. But with this one, I hit a roadblock, and finally one day, well, if we had more time, I know we're pressed for time. I could tell you the whole story about it, but I'm going to shoot right to the conclusion of this story. I suddenly saw it. The blessings from the Old Covenant splash over and continue and are magnified in the New. Wow. But the curse that's in the Old Testament, curse shall you be if you violate, that stops. And I couldn't figure out how it stopped. Now, it should have been obvious to me, but I got stuck there. And all of a sudden, one day, I saw it. Galatians 3.13, cursed is he who hangs on the tree. The full force of the sins of humanity were absorbed like a grand shock absorber by Jesus on the cross. That's why Paul writes, he who knew no sin became sin for us. It says he became a curse. He didn't just take a curse, take some sin. He actually became it. That's the agony of Jesus on the cross was not just the excruciating pain. By the way, the word excruciating comes X from cruce, cross, the most painful death you could have from a cross. Mm. So the word excruciating means of a cross. And so he had this excruciating of the cross pain physically, but he had the moral pain of being becoming sin for humanity. Now, it means, how does sin start? Well, the fall of Lucifer, then the fall of Adam and Eve. And embryonically, we're present. And then all of our cumulative sins of all of humanity since then. Roll those three things into one enormous ball. And that ball comes rolling down through history and crashes into the grand shock absorber Jesus. And he takes that. You talk about agonizing. Sinless. He takes on that pain in that particular moment. And he who knew no sin, he became sin for us. He took the whole notion of the curse absorbed it in his body and we don't find any pronouncements of curses after that and we do find woe be if you sin the consequences of your action we, we find those kind of things there's certainly the consequences of sin but in terms of a curse you know that was taken by the cross this hmm. is astounding then you have the eighth step that's the covenant making ceremony and by the way i we don't have time to park here i'll just say it this way hebrews 2 14 colossians 2 14 are both passages that show that Satan was defeated at the point of the cross of Jesus. This is before the resurrection. The resurrection mm -hmm. settles another issue. And I would contend that First Peter tells us the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection, there was another issue going on. But at least for right now, for our purposes, the crucifixion itself, the crucifixion at that point, at the point of Jesus' death, Satan was destroyed. Now, he was destroyed kind of like the allied, the forces of Germany were destroyed on D-Day, but it wasn't until V-Day we completely wiped them out. 
So we're okay. between D-Day and V-Day with Satan at this point. So he's still functioning on the earth, but he's functioning on death row because at the moment that Jesus died, this was the only time in all of history where somebody died who was not guilty of death, guilty of a sin that merited death. This was the first time completely innocent blood had flowed of someone who was totally sinless. That meant that Satan was now on death row. He put himself there, and a shriek from the pit of hell came out that moment because he recognized who he dealt with. Let's go to the step eight. I'll shoot through this one really quick. It's the covenant meal. When Jesus and I entered the covenant, we swore, we shared a meal together. Uh-huh. In John 6, Jesus talks about this, and the Pharisees don't get it. He says, unless you guys, unless you guys eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not going to have life in the kingdom. They go, whoa, that sounds cannibalistic. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> they don't understand it. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul deals with this much more straightforwardly. And then the exchange of names. In Acts chapter 11, there was a, a name exchange. John chapter 5, we'll see another one, 527. What was it? When Jesus and I entered into covenant, I took on the name Christian. We pronounce it Christian. The I-A-N suffix on that word indicates one who belongs to somebody else. So Christian means one who belongs to Christ. That's the technical definition of it. And I took on myself the name of Christian or Christian, Acts eleven twenty six. And I, from that moment, was identified with Jesus. And Jesus took upon himself my name. How did he do that? He could have been called the Son of God, which he was. He went with the identification from that mark on with the Son of Man. And then comes the final one. And this is this tenth step. And this is the one I told you about is really pretty exhilarating. The tenth step of the covenant ceremony. Okay, <laughs> let's suppose, Robert, you and I are making covenant, cutting covenant as tribal chiefs in an ancient culture. And we come to the tenth step. The crowd is holding their breath. They know what's about to happen. They know what's about to happen is the covenant's going to be tested. It's going to be proven. What does that mean? That means to prove the covenant. Well, let me just stop here. What's your oldest son's name? Hudson. I'm sorry? Hudson. Did you say I'm having trouble hearing over my... (laughs) Sorry. H-U-D-S-O-N. Hudson. Okay. I thought that's what you said. The car. (laughs) You're you're too young to know that car. That's... Okay, you named your son Hudson. What a great name. Now, you and I are about to cut a covenant. And the way we're going to prove or test the covenant is we're going to exchange our oldest male child. Mm. I will take hold of Joshua's hand. I will walk over to you and I'll say, Joshua, you're my son. I love you. I care so much for you. I can't tell you what you mean to me. But I've made a covenant with Robert. And it means you now will become the son of Robert. You'll live at his house. You'll become Robert's son. Now, place your hand now, Joshua, into Robert's. Robert, you would walk to me, and you'd say, Hudson, I love you. You mean everything to me. But I've made a covenant, and we're in the process of proving or testing that covenant to see if that covenant's for real. Mm. And to know for it's real, we're going to have to exchange all the sons. And so now I'm going to exchange my—I'm going to give you to Jim. You will now live in Jim's home as Jim's son from this moment on. And the exchange of the oldest male child— will complete the, the audience would be gasping because they would realize the pain that we're feeling. Now, let me take you back to the Genesis passage. Genesis 22, it says, God rather says, Abraham, yes, God, your boy, sacrifice your boy. Wow. Abraham did not go, what? Are you kidding me? This is the promised child. 
If you don't produce through him, you can't keep your promise. I'm not going to sacrifice him. Now, that would be a normal human response unless you understood the covenant, the steps of the covenant-making ceremony. You have to give your son to the other covenant member. There's two kinds of covenant in this world. There's a parity covenant. That means among equals. That'd be the kind that Jim and Robert, among equals, we would participate in. But there's also another covenant. It's called the suzerain covenant. This is a suzerain covenant. God, who's got everything, with humankind, who's got nothing. If a king and a peasant cut a covenant, it's called a suzerain covenant. Because hmm. the king had everything, and the peasant had nothing. And so the king says, you know, if we can make this covenant, everything I have is going to belong to you. And the peasant says, well, everything I have belongs to you, but I don't have anything. I don't have anything. What can I bring to the covenant? I don't bring anything. Nothing. And the king says, oh, yes, you can. You can bring the one thing I want of you. And the peasant says, what's that? You. I want you. Hmm. So this is a suzerain covenant. And this is God and Abram. God has got everything. And Abram, who for practical purposes didn't have anything. And they're entering into covenant. And so God says, Abram, sacrifice your boy. And so Abraham starts walking with Abraham to the appointed place of Mount Moriah, which turns out to be the same place as the Temple Mount where the sacrifices are, which is right across the Kidron Valley where the ultimate sacrifice took place of Jesus. So now he starts walking. And Genesis 22 says, now look what's tucked into the passage. When he had walked three days, what happened in those three days? Isaac was as good as dead in the heart of Abraham for three days. He's going to rise on the third day. You get in the picture here? Oh, we get wow. to the site. We get to Mount Moriah. And Isaac says, hey, Dad, uh, where's the sacrifice? He says, God's going to provide. Yahweh, God will provide. It's okay. So Isaac hauls wood up the mountain. People picture about him being a baby. No, he wasn't a baby. How old was he? We don't know. He might have been 33. Kind of interesting. He hauls the wood up the hill. The Hebrew word for wood is also the same as tree. Years later, Jesus would haul a tree or wood up a hill. You get what's wow. happening here in this passage? Now, Abram raises the knife, and he's ready to raise the knife. And God, Abram, 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 I'm at your attention. Now, we have to jump over to Hebrews, Hebrews 11. And there in Hebrews 11, we get a glimpse inside of Abram psychologically. We go inside of Abram's mind. And here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obviously paraphrase this. Because in Abram's heart, he's already has sacrificed Isaac. Why? Because he knows that God's promise is that through Isaac is going to come all of his descendants. And Isaac is the promise kid, promise boy. And so he knows that God is going to have to raise him from the dead. When had Abraham ever seen a resurrection? The answer is never. Abraham believed in God so much. He believed God could do something that in all of written history, and all oral history, nothing like this had ever been recorded. His trust, his faith, his dependency, his reliance on God was so profound. He believed God could do something that no one had even heard of, not even he, Abraham. That's why God reckoned it as to righteousness, Abraham's faith. So Abram's got the knife in the air. He says, hey, 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 stop, stop. He says, you know what? Hebrews 11, now I'm jumping to Hebrews 11. Because in your heart, you've as good as sacrificed him. You've already done this. You know that if you sacrifice him, I'm going to have to raise him from the dead. You know that. And, and it actually says, the text says that, that. 
He said, therefore, let's save us both a lot of time. You don't need to sacrifice him, and I won't need to resurrect him because you've already, in effect, done it in your heart. You can see him being sacrificed, and you have belief that I'm going to raise him from the dead. So it's as good as done already in the realm of the spirit. No point in going through that in the realm of the physical. He stops him. In that point, God says, Abram, do you know what you've just done? Now, let's stop. I'm going to freeze frame right there and come back to that phrase. Remember I said to you, Genesis 15 is the most electric passage in Scripture for every single person listening to this right now. In mm -hmm. Genesis 15, I think it's verse 12, I'm trying to recall here. And Abraham and God are cutting a covenant. They're cutting the covenant. And this is the most important moment in his life. He's never in his life had a moment like this. This is, he's cutting covenant with God. This is a suzerain covenant with Almighty God. In that moment, Abraham fell asleep. Are you kidding me? He missed <laughs> the biggest moment of his life. That'd be like we come to a wedding, the bride comes down the aisle, and the pastor's standing there, and all, all the grooms, everybody's standing there, the whole congregation, and where, where's the groom? Well, I'm sorry, he fell asleep. What do you mean he <laughs> fell asleep? Boy, that would not fare well for that guy. <laughs> Abraham, in the most important moment of his entire life, the cutting of the covenant, the walking between the pieces of the heifer, he fell asleep. It says a deep sleep fell on him. Genesis 15. Why? God anesthetized him. Why? Because God knew that once you made a covenant, if you violated one iota of that covenant, it's curtains. You're toast. You're dead. And so God, in his profound love, said, Abraham, I'm going to put you out cold. He anesthetized him. And in Genesis 15, when the two walk, one of the marks of the covenant making ceremony is somebody can walk as a representative of somebody else who's not there. And so when they go to walk between the parts, a smoking fire pot, some translation, a smoking oven. When God shows up, how does he show up? Fire and smoke. Okay, here comes the father walking between the parts to make good on his part of the covenant. And then here comes a secondary party coming through. Who's that? The flaming torch. What's that? Second member of the Trinity. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is the Jesus before wow. baby in Bethlehem. This is the Jesus who always is. The son who always is. He has no beginning point, no ending point. He always is. The son was present and he walked between the parts for abraham's sake and abraham's physical descendants and abraham's spiritual descendants because the covenant is multi-generational and the result is that that covenant when he walked between the parts jesus walked between the parts and he paid an unbelievable high price for doing it that is the foundation to john 3 16 and unless we understand genesis 15 I believe it's verse 12 or whatever. When that flaming sword went between that parts and Abram slept through it, that was you and me embryonically present and humanity and Abram, and he walked for our parts and he died on the cross in wow. our behalf. Now, let me jump you to one more part of this. Here we are. God is saying, Abram, because you've done this thing, because we're at Mount Moriah now, sacrifice of Isaac. And he says, because you've done this, what? Because you sacrificed Isaac. Wait a minute, he didn't sacrifice it. Oh, yes, he did. Hebrews 11, he sacrificed him in his heart. 
because you have done this, you're going to have control of the gates of your enemies. Well, who wants gates around the backyard? I mean, what a gate, what's that mean? It means nothing unless you understand that culture in which it's written. He who controlled the gates had all authority. The elders set by the gates, they determined the immigration policy, who got in and who got out. They mm. controlled all the commerce. We've all learned that right now during the coronavirus event because the government's controlling all of commerce. They're controlling mm -hmm. who comes and goes. You can't come and go. You can't enter this country. You can't even leave. The, you can't do anything right now because who controls the gates controls everything. Mm -hmm. Well, in that environment, it was exactly true in physical gates. And he says, you're going to control the gates of your enemy. Now, when do we find language like that? In Matthew chapter 16, 16, and Matthew 18, 18, he repeats it. He says, Jesus Christ, he's at uh, Caesarea Philippi. And of all places, he reveals that Jesus had never revealed who he was, except the Samaritan woman. He revealed her, but he never revealed to his disciples fully who he was. They were figuring it out, but he went to Caesarea Philippi. Why did he go to Caesarea Philippi? That was considered a portal to hell. The gates Why? of hell were considered to be way up in that northern city, Caesarea Philippi. He took them up there to the place that's identified with the gates of hell. And he says, hey, guys, who do you think I am? Who's the Jerusalem Post reporting that I am today? And they say, well, some think you're Jeremiah, some think you're Elijah, some think you're John the Baptist, come from the dead. And he says, okay, okay, enough of that. Who do you guys think I am? Got real quiet. Who always spoke up first? Always Peter. And Peter <laughs> said some really dumb things, but this time Peter came through. He says, <clears throat> I'm going to paraphrase, we know who you are. Really, who am I, Peter? You, you, you're him. Who? Him. You're, 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 you're Messiah. You're you're, you're God. You're the anointed. You're, you're God. And Jesus says, hey, let me tell you, Peter, you didn't learn that in seminary. You didn't learn that reading books. You didn't learn that online. The only way you could ever know this truth is if my father showed it to you and told you. And now that the word is out on me, I watch he's going to move into covenantal language here. Now that the word is out on who I am, here's what we're going to do. I have all authority. That's a paraphrase, and we find that language again in the, in the Great Commission. I have all authority. And because I have all authority, that's understood. I'm going to, now that you know this, I'm going to transfer authority. We're going to exchange names now. And you're going to start operating in my name. Every time we pray, in Jesus' name I pray. Where'd that come from? That's covenantal. Makes no sense. You have no right to pray in somebody else's name. Unless someone's made a covenant with you and given you that wow. permission. Every time we pray the prayer, in Jesus' name. The whole Lord's Prayer is covenantal in language. He says, okay, Peter, and you guys, yeah, Peter, your name's Rock, and I'm going to play off your name, Rock. And on the rock of this revelation, the truth of this, I'm going to now give you authority. And what you declare, what you declare to be inappropriate, illegal on earth, I'm going to back you up. You be aligned with, here's what you do. Fill your spirit with my word, link your word, your lips up to my spirit, and speak my word to the situation of life. Now, here's the implications of covenantal praying. Covenantal praying is instead of us looking at God and begging God to do what he does, he already wants to do. That's not wrong to do that. I don't, I'm Sometimes my best prayers are just help. Jesus, help. That's all I can pray. I get that. I'm not <laughs> condemning. And petition prayers mean we make requests of him. That's nothing wrong with that. That just is not covenantal language. It's not the most authoritative praying. Authoritative covenantal prayer is when you understand who you are in Christ because you're in covenant with Almighty God. It's like David standing before Goliath saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He should defy me. I know who I am. God is within me, and I take you on. Glad you don't have a chance. 
So our praying becomes like that. We look at Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew idiom was mountain. We look at the mountains of our life. Mountains means the difficulties of our life. And we declare them, mountain be moved. That's covenantal language we find Jesus speaking about. Why? Because we're operating now on his authority. And instead of looking at God, begging him to do what he already wants to do, we turn around our back and he's backing us up. God's behind us now, backing us up as a covenantal partner. And we're declaring to the situations in life, the mountains, so to speak, in our life, the difficulties, the circumstances of life that are contrary to God's word. We're declaring God's word, God's will, God's way. And he's backing us up because there's something about words that has authority in the realm of the spirit when your covenant partner is almighty God. And I close with this thought. I close with this thought. And that is a picture. I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament. Remember I said that Saul and Jonathan, not, not Saul and Jonathan, Saul was, they had a son named Jonathan. Jonathan right. and David cut a covenant. David and Jonathan made a covenant. Now, there came a time when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. And David one day, we'll find this later on, he's preparing for an evening meal. I just prepare, I picture it in my mind, him, him washing his hands for the evening meal, the dinner time, and he notices the covenant mark on his wrist. Now, whether mm -hmm. he had one there or not, this is literary license I'm taking right now. And he goes, wow, I miss Jonathan. How, how many years has Jonathan been dead? Was it 10, 20, 30 now? How many years has he been dead? My covenant partner. And then David goes, aha. You know, all the descendants, multi-generational, all the descendants of Jonathan, they're in covenant with me too. I wonder if there's any descendants. And he goes to his servant, Ziba, in this passage, 2 Samuel 4. He goes to his servant and says, Ziba, are there any descendants of, of, of Jonathan? Ziba says, yes, there is. And he lives down in Lodabar. And David goes, Lodabar? Oh, no, what a God-forsaken place. Who's paraphrased? He says, go down and get him. So Ziba goes down. This is high drum. He knocks on the door. And Ziba, who's dwelling in this whole horrible place, says, who's there? He says, Ziba sent from the king. Mephibosheth is the name. Mephibosheth says, oh, no, leave me alone here. Leave me alone. I know why you're coming from the king. Because any descendant who's left over from the previous king, the new king wants to kill him because he thinks the descendants are going to rise back up and try to establish the old kingship. I'm not going to do that. I'm crippled in my feet. I'm lame. I can't even walk right. Leave me alone, please. Ziba says, nope, I'm taking you to David. And he's terrified. He gets before David. This is high drama. And he falls down before David. He knows he's about to be killed. This is Jonathan's son named Mephibosheth mm -hmm. who's lame. And Jonathan and David had cut a covenant many years before. And David says, Mephibosheth. And he goes, oh, Mephibosheth cries, what a, well, I'm just a dead dog in front of you. Boy, that's low self-esteem. He doesn't understand the covenant. And David says, no, I'm calling you here. Because, and they, it gets translated in the Bible, loving kindness. The word there is C in the Hebrew, C-H-E-S-E-D. C-H-E-S-E-D. It looks like cheesed or chesed. The word is pronounced chesed. Chesed in the Hebrew. I did my master's thesis on that word. And this word, it's so hard to translate it because it means covenantal love. Oh, love that will never give up on me. Oh, love that will not let me go. And David says to Mephibosheth, I'm going to show you loving kindness. That's way too weak a word. The translation is so weak. It means I'm going to show you covenantal love that never gives up. I'm going to show it because I cut a covenant with your daddy, your daddy, Jonathan, and it's multi-generation. And he says, Mephibosheth, look at me. Everything I have. And he prepared a huge feast, it says in 2 Samuel 4, for this moment. He said, look at this feast. 
All the servants and my sons, they prepared a feast for you. Everything, because of the covenant, everything I have belongs to you. That's not what the covenant means. Now, let me make an application, and I close. In that story, that's a historical story, but I think it has spiritual application. I don't think it's a stretch too far to make the spiritual application goes like that. In that story, David represents Jesus. We are demonstrated by Mephibosheth. Mm-hmm. We walk crippled. We don't understand the covenant, so we operate the thorn below the authority of the covenant and the blessings Jesus has for us. And where do we dwell? In Lodabar. What was Lodabar? A dry, arid place. How does that literally translate in the Hebrew? Lodabar, the place of no word. The place where we're deprived of the word of God. The mm-hmm. place where we're deprived in the aridness, spiritual aridness. We're deprived of the richness of the word of God on the teaching, on the covenant. And Jesus says, he sends Ziba, that's the Holy Spirit. Go out and get that guy who can't even walk, lame old Mephibosheth, and get him out of that dry, arid place where he has no teaching of the word, and bring him here. And Jesus in this, he says, look, I'm going to paraphrase what's actually happening. Take some literary license. Jesus is trying to convey to us what we have in him. And he says, look on my wrist. Look at the covenant mark. When Jesus was crucified, the nail didn't go through the palm of his hand. It went through the wrist. So it says it went through his hand. The Hebrew word yod for hand includes the wrist. The only way a body could bear up is by the nail going through the wrist. And so on there on the wrist of Jesus, where the covenant mark was practiced in many primitive cultures, was the mark of the nail, the covenant mark. And Jesus points to his wrist. And he says to those of us who walk in our lame fashion, dwelling down in low Gabar, the dry, arid place that's deprived of word teaching, low Debar, the place of no word. He says, look at the covenant mark on me right here. And all the blessings I have belong to you if you'll come into relationship with me. And that's what Jesus invites us. I don't even understand this next statement, Robert, when I say all the blessings that Jesus has for us are available to us today. I don't fully even understand that. I understand eternity later on. I don't fully understand, but all the blessings that Jesus has belong to us and are available to us today. That's why the teaching is so powerful. And wow. Jesus would say to your listeners right now, he would say, come on, quit, quit dwelling down low to bar the place of no word. You, you got to have more word teaching. You got to have more of the word. If you knew about the covenant, you'd know the word and you'd operate in the word and its authority. Now come out of low to bar, quit walking lame, Start walking robustly, spiritually. Come into understanding of the covenant. Look at my wrist, the price I paid, and I invite you in to the covenant. That's the most important teaching I've ever heard and I've ever given. Absolutely, absolutely mind-boggling. I think about the situation we're in right now and that we're in our homes and we celebrated Passover last week as a church, uh, talking about, wow, maybe for the first time in history, all the Jewish families are all back in their home, just their families, and celebrating just as it happened in the time of Passover. Now we're doing this as Christians and coming into an understanding, and now we're taking communion more regularly, and now we're talking about the blood of Jesus and talking about the blood covenant. And you talked about David and 
Goliath and the confidence David could have because he understood he was in covenant. I mean, I, I'd never seen that. Talking about these these different thoughts with Abraham and Isaac and bringing that to life. But I just think, wow, could it be right now that God is awakening us to have such a greater, profound understanding of the blood of Jesus, of the Passover, of the covenant of the cross, and that while we have a little more time in our homes and while we feel a little more vulnerable, this is the very time that we could be having our minds blown, our hearts just filled, and our spirits just full of hope because there's so much more that he has for us and that we've walked in in the past. And so I think to me, this is, at least for me today, Jim, this is just another way where I'm going, Lord, you're taking a a hard and challenging situation and you're refocusing us as the church to just see how very good you are to us. You're way better than we ever thought. And this story is so much more profound than we ever imagined. So I just want to thank you. Let me just, uh, two things. Uh, if they want to hear more, you said you wrote a book. Uh, is that book available somewhere? How can they find that? Yes, the book is called The Blood Covenant, and they can go to my website, wellversedworld.org, wellversedworld.org, and there's a little store there. They can look at the, the various books I have, but the Blood Covenant is what we're talking about today. If they want to sign up for a newsletter from our ministry in Washington, D.C., and our ministry in the, in the United Nations and in Jerusalem, they can, they can go there and sign up as well. It's available there. And also, on right now, I don't know how long it's going to be there, but at least on the home page of the website, they can click on the Blood Covenant. And there's uh, four teachings of about an hour 15 each. And there's extensive outlines all available right there wellversedworld.org, they'll see uh, one button that says coronavirus response, and that goes to three articles and 20 short videos. But right beside us, right beside it or right below it, they'll find where it says the blood covenant, and they click on that one, and that'll bring up uh, three different documents that are outlines for all four sessions, and they were just recorded recently. I mean, I've, I've taught on this a lot of different places and churches, uh, but this was just recorded just a Oh, a week ago in my back patio during this coronavirus season. And I take about an hour 15 on each portion of four different parts. Once I only summarized parts one and two right now, parts three and four walk on into, okay, if we really believe this, the blood covenant, then what are the implications for how we live in the authority of the covenant? And so that's what parts three and four on that we did not touch on today. That is perfect. I want to encourage everyone to do that, to visit wellversedworld.org. And I know that I speak for so many of us, Dr. Garlow, in saying thank you for the way that you are teaching the nations. Literally, the Bible says to go into all nations and make disciples or disciple nations. And you are doing that. And we are, as all people search, proud supporters of your work and your ministry and just so grateful to have you as the spiritual mentor to us so thank you thank you so much for the time and i know that we are much better people enriched in our spirits and i'm leaving this conversation with a deeper hunger for more of god and more understanding of this amazing 
covenant that Jesus has given us. So thank you so much, and God bless you. And thank you so much for tuning in with us today on this podcast. And uh, there is going to be a great blessing, I believe, from listening to this and diving into this topic more. So God bless you.